Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, before we start the show, I thought I'd uh, say hello and Happy New Year, basically. Hopefully, Mid-Atlantic is going to go for strength to strength in 2022. We've secured somewhat of an alliance with a political operative who's a great mover and shaker in the United States. So hopefully, hopefully, that will open up more influential guests and more kind of sitting politicians. But this show, um, I recorded about two, three weeks ago, and it was with Gregory Miller who's one of the two co-founders and is the Chief Operating Officer of the OSET Institute. Now, first off, I am working with OSET. But the reason why I thought I should quickly intro this is because the conversation didn't really turn out the way that I expected, the way that I wanted. I wanted a conversation which is going to be more about American civics and attitudes. But what OSET do is election technology, and their mission is to increase integrity, improve turnout. So the conversation kind of went down a slightly different path and I kind of felt somewhat underprepared for the way that the conversation went. I think it's a great conversation. It's an enjoyable show. But I just wanted to be honest and hold my hand up and say that what I had in mind isn't exactly the way the conversation went. This is definitely a conversation about Americans talking about um, civic engagement, uh, but it's less about uh, why America has, uh, let's say, the attitudes that it has around governance and more specifically about voter integrity and the vote. So there you go. It's a great conversation. Uh, this is me speaking to Gregory Miller and the mass ranks of uh, Mid-Atlantic uh, folk on Clubhouse. Enjoy. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and uh, good evening, good afternoon, good morning, wherever you are. This is Mid-Atlantic. My name is Roy Ford Brown and I'm sat in a rather wet London. And today I'm going to be speaking to Gregory Miller of OSET or the Trust the Vote organisation to talk about how exactly does American, American democracy work. And if we're to believe anything in the last year, many Americans believe that dead 
men actually do vote. So we're going to ask Gregory Miller of the OSET Institution why so many Americans have that fallacy. Gregory, welcome to the stage. How are you today, sir? Great, thanks, you, and glad to be here. Simple question for us in the rest of the world. Greg, has there been a year since the end of the Civil War which has been so consequential to American democracy? It, it felt on January the 6th that potentially the country that lords itself has been the most stable in the world was heading towards some form of coup d'etat. Is that hyperbole on my part? Is that the rest of the world um, not quite understanding uh, the situation that happened on the capital? And before you answer the question, I'd like to take us back to uh, a report on CBS on January the 6th. Push people back, hold them back, and arrest them. They did seem to be arresting some, but they no longer have been able to keep them back. You can see some Capitol Police officers and protesters up there waving for more. If you look just right next to me, there is a massive amount of what appears to be blood on the ground here. Uh, one, at least one person over here is being injured and taken away. Yeah, as more and more people make their way towards the step and push through, as I was watching this saying, it looks like people are being arrested. One woman came up to me and she said that this is what happens when they believe that there have been what they believe are fraud in the election. and told me these are people standing up for America. Gregory, were those protesters are who rioters, insurrectionists, choose the word, or patriots, choose whichever word that you want, were they standing up for America and American democracy? Apologies for a moment there, Roy Field. I literally had to recompose myself after listening to that excerpt. Um, I, I'm having an emotional moment here. It's hard, very hard to hear. That day will go down as a blight on the on this great American experiment of representative democracy. So I have to say that I have some guardrails here because, as you as you may know, at the OSIT Institute, some of us are still detached to, to the national security apparatus on various aspects of election security and related matters. So there are things that I, I, I won't be able to talk about in too much in depth. Um, but I can go up to that guardrail repeatedly, and here's the first step: um, no. In no shape or form whatsoever were the individuals who were responsible for that insurrection um, reflecting the, the, the tenor of, uh, of, of America and, and, and our attitude towards um, the election process, the peaceful transfer of power, um, or, or any of it. Just not so. Yes, there is a, a, a tremendous issue in this country with, with whether or not there's trust in the vote but not to the level that was was created um, by that event. I've always been really struck in my kind of studying of American democracy and American elections that you get what's trumpeted out at, after every election is the peaceful transfer of power. And I must admit, as, as a Brit, I kind of somewhat bristle as if to say, well, you're hardly unique in that America. Swedish elections can go left and right, and there's always a peaceful transfer of power, let alone British ones. Do we seriously now, after what's happened this year, not take that as a given that uh, the loser in an American election uh, will actually gracefully step aside for the incumbent to take up the position? Well, Lord only hopes that, um, that we never witness what we witnessed in, on January 6th again. 
um, with regard to the administration of our democracy. Um, no, it is not a foregone conclusion that uh, that there there won't be objections and and, and problems. Um, unfortunately, I think uh, there's a there's a new reality here, um, which is that elections are are not to be trusted, um, and we've got to find a way to try to to cure that. I mean, let's remember that this was the result of one of the most successful disinformation misinformation campaigns in history. Um, we're certain that certain uh, foreign nationals and, and others were gloating over the success of this, right? Um, we had a, a nation hoodwinked. Um, so I think that there's going to continue to be that, that problem. And no, it's not a foregone conclusion and things will, will transfer peacefully. In fact, I think we're gritting quite seriously for, for what's coming this midterm cycle um, starting in just a few days um, and certainly 2024. This is what's happened this year, but let's kind of go back. You have a reason for why you set up um, OSET and, and why Trust the Vote uh, me, means so, so much to you. But but let, let's go back and try and uh, quickly plot out your story and the reason why this means so much to you. So your parents um, escaped from, from Germany just before the start of the Second World War. You are going to make this an emotional engagement today, aren't you? I am... Uh... I am the son of Holocaust survivors, um, not the grandson, not the second cousin, but my parents um, for, for different reasons. My father's family was Jewish, my mother's family was Catholic. Um, and for those of you who are students of that history, you recognize that at some point Catholics were no more safe than anyone else. Um, if you weren't ein Protester, then you were in trouble. Um, yes, both of my parents um, managed um, by the grace of God, to uh, escape Germany in 38 and 39, um, respectively. Um, late parents, I should point out, um, by now. And I wouldn't be here had they not found a way to, to get here. You can imagine that every time I hear America first as a slogan that the prior administration thought so, was so clever, um, how I bristled at that, because Charles Lindbergh and others um, in, in our history um, had no interest in any refugees coming to this country uh, in, in, in that time period, and especially um, Jewish people from, from, uh, from Europe. So the fact that my parents were able uh, to get in because of prior relationships and other things um, was good, but many, many of them did not make it out. A good portion of my father's family ended up um, ultimately in Nuremberg. Um, so democracy means an awful lot meant an awful lot to my family. My, my late brother served in, in the military, in the Navy, uh, Marines, two tours of duty uh, in Vietnam. Uh, my father, um, so happy to be here and so much wanting to be a part of this, the fabric of this nation, dedicated his career, much, much of it too, as an, um, an NG, part of the NGO operations in, in the naval shipyards, um, as a machinist and a mechanical engineer. My mother was, um, was a mathematician and cryptographer, uh, a German mathematician cryptographer, no less, who found herself uh, in, in Bremerton, Washington, um, with the same crew of people who were working on decoding the Pacific Theater um, the night before Pearl Harbor. So um, we have a long history of the importance of our democracy and, and sustaining it, and that has given me purpose. Is it possible, Greg, to separate, do you think, um, support for Madisonian democracy from being just an American? Because as I kind of kind of hinted at before, as much as I'm fascinated uh, by America and its ideals of citizenship, they are atypical 
um, throughout the world. You know, I'm British, I'm English. There is no British constitution. There are no guiding principles of how Britain governs itself. Ditto the Dutch, the Norwegians, the Italians, etc. The possible exception in, in the Western world, the, the possible exception is France. You know, there are some French ideals of the French Republic. Uh, can you be an American, a good old patriotic American, and basically not believe in Madisonian democracy? Is that possible? I have to say, I honestly, don't know at this point. This this has become a bit of a blur for me, and and I have to point out that you know, although I'm an engineer with legal training and and uh, you know, a student of the Constitution to a certain extent, I can't profess to be a constitutional lawyer. I can't profess to be a civics expert, um, or or really. Um, as much as I would love to dive into con to, to comparative structures between the various um, democracies across the globe. I've, our, our mission at the OSA Institute is global in nature, but uh, parliamentarian democracies are considerably different than the, than the balkanized by design system here. To be an American requires, is compelled upon us to have an appreciation for the principles, if you will, that, that, that were set forth um, from the Declaration of Independence um, on into the Constitution. Sadly, um, through political maturations, um, that educational component has been stripped from our public education system here in the United States, such that um, it is absolutely shocking to me um, to see today the, the average citizen's understanding of how things work um, compared to those of us who were in preparatory school in the 70s. It's, it's nutty. Um, people do not understand how things work here, and that, that is in large part an ingredient to to why we have the problems we have, I fear. Do you believe then that some of the disinformation that the American public has been fed, uh, that, you know, dead men are voting, that ballot boxes have been stuffed, et cetera, et cetera, or ballots have not been counted, that um, a good dose of civics is, is what, um, let's say, the next generation of Americans need? Is it as simple as that? But I'm not sure it's, it's it's not exclusively that, right? But that is that's a very important um, a base ingredient to 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 solving the problems. People have to understand how things work and don't work, so they can come to realize that on rare occasion a dead man may vote. Um, and I can give you some really good examples of why that can accidentally happen, uh, even in the limited four cases that were found recently in one state. But that ballots don't find their way over to Spain or Germany for, for, for manipulation and return to the United States, right? That's, that's nonsense. Um, so I think that, this, that, that a, a civics education has to be restored in this country. And, and part of it is just simply understanding how America votes. And I don't mean politically, campaign-wise. I mean, what is the mechanics of how that process works here? Two articles and seven amendments to the U.S. Constitution make it very clear that elections are entirely a state's matter. Um, and, and that's, that's the first step to understand a whole host of, thing, of, how, of how things work and why the system is so balkanized by design, why it can be that in 3,300 counties across 50 states and five territories that there are 10,000 elections jurisdictions and every single one of them has a slightly different way of doing things. And, and is that a strength of the system or an inherent weakness? Subject matter of great debate here stateside. Um, it depends upon how you how you how you view things, right? Um, if you if, if federalism uh, courses your 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 veins, then then you may have a very strong opinion uh, about that. We think there's 
at the OSINT Institute, we believe there's probably a necessary balance that has to, to occur. In other words, when it is said that there is a state's right and a, and a federal interest, <clears throat> what's been lost in this discussion is what is the legitimate federal interest, and there, and there is one. Um, and of course, it's in the outcomes of federal offices, the president and, and, and Congress. So I, I think that, that a couple of things. One, as much as we would love to see a federalized system of casting and counting ballots, as we see in, in other uh, parliamentary democracies, um, where, where the, the, the process and the, and the machinery and everything else is far simpler, the necessary complications of, the, of this, the state the distribution uh, means that there's going to have to be some, some balance between how the two sides agree and how this should work. You told us about your personal uh, kind of family story and uh, and you more than just hinted at the reasons why um, shoring up helping American democracy is important to you. But can you take us back to, um, let's say, uh, the year or two before you actually founded OSET? Um, what were you doing and what happened? What was the catalyst for you to say, I need to um, be a bulwark um, against threats to American democracy? Well, sure. I was at the time a, a blue-blooded capitalist um, working within the ecosystem of venture capital um, and, and, and venture investing, um, having had you know, a three-decade career in technology as an engineer and product manager and marketing executive. Um, for many of the brands we all know, right? Uh, Apple, Netscape Communications, the Mozilla, Sun Microsystems, uh, etc., was just you know content over there. Quite frankly, <laughs> had a had a fair had a fair salary and um, enjoyed the opportunity to participate in that ecosystem in in, in advancing innovation, believing in capital markets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Considering myself at the time to be fiscal conservative, a social progressive, then tending towards center right, and it was quite an accident, quite by accident, that we founded this project in in November of 2006. It was just after the. The, the midterms there and all the mess in Cuyahoga County, Ohio, and, and et cetera, and, and a lot of question about why the voting machinery that we had turned to following what I called the Chad Fest of 2000 in Bush v. Gore in Florida, why had we had done nothing to improve upon hanging chats, right? Um, why were these computers so sloppy and ridiculously vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera? That happened at about the same time that we were looking at how you disintermediate markets and how do you improve market performance. We were actually, literally, I was doing a brown bag lunch colloquium at a, a firm that I was um, working in. Um, and we were looking at a, at a project, technology project, around the notion of federated identities. Bear in mind, this was 2006, and look at where we are today. Another entire episode. Bottom line was, is that in the course of looking at market disintermediation and market you know, malformation and why markets don't perform well, the market for voting machinery, it was November just before American Thanksgiving, was the perfect poster child for that discussion. And that's when we discovered that there was an, a ginormous problem brewing in 2006. At the time, there were eight or nine major vendors of voting systems. Today, three vendors control 90% of America's voting infrastructure and 75% of the global infrastructure. We predicted there would be four by 2016. Uh, we're at three now, and one of them is on the edge. So, at the time, what we said was, "We've got to. There's got to be a way to fix this." But it turned out that there wasn't a viable commercial way to do so. So, initially, what you guys were responding to 
wasn't necessarily a threat to the precepts of American democracy. This was the fact that there were questions around tabulation of votes. Would, would that be a, a simple layman's, I'm an Englishman in London trying to understand exactly what you were responding to back then? Yeah, initially the problem was that the casting and counting of ballots were being uh, conducted on computers that were producing erratic results that immediately people were suspicious of, right? So we thought, well, surely there ought to be a venture who can build a better voting machine. I mean, we were coming out of Apple, right, and Netscape. We, we knew a thing or two about building product. We said, why is this? Why is this? And we turned out, we figured out right away that elect- elections systems and technology are literally a backwater of government IT, an inherently partisan backwater that nobody wants to deal with until they absolutely have to. That seemed untenable to us because we immediately recognized, well, wait a minute, this is critical democracy infrastructure you're talking about. Why is it a backwater of government IT? Why does nobody care about it? And why are we using such you know, shoddy equipment? Again, um, the basis of this show is to compare and contrast. And I have never heard in all of my 53 years on, on this planet of being an Englishman, anybody talk about elections, software, or there to be any question that um, that the vote is the vote in the United Kingdom. I've never heard of that. And, I've, and, I, and with just a cursory um, knowledge of other Western Europeans, how they go about uh, conducting their democracies, whether it's Sweden or Norway or Germany or Italy, I cannot think of political parties of candidates trying to sue or say they're going to sue uh, the result of a local election. What is so peculiar about America that we know the names of organizations that tabulate this stuff, like Dominion was a company which I'd never heard of four years ago or so. But what is so peculiar about American democracy that the the names of these companies that that do what, what you do are now actually out there? And doesn't that display a weakness and a fragility in American democracy and its process of actually how it goes about trusting each other. I won't attempt to deny that that the the current infrastructure um, doesn't make for a very trustworthy environment. The the peculiarity here um, really boils down to the simple fact that we are a nation of impatience with some constitutional mandates and limitations about when that orderly transfer of power must occur. Our constitution doesn't allow for what we call a mulligan or a do-over um, with, with absolute certainty and a great deal of precision um, and provisions. That orderly transfer on the 20th of January you know, has to occur. And so there's only so much time between the, the, the day of elections in November and that point to properly count, um, tabulate, um, canvas, certify, verify and certify the results and then because we have this, this layer called an electoral college um, you know, to, to, for the states to determine their electors and then send them to Congress and, and go through the pomp and circumstance of all that. The bottom line is that you take a state like, like California, where we originated, you have 35 million ballots that you have to count in the, in the course of 12 to 24 hours, uh, not including absentee ballots and et cetera, mail-in ballots from overseas for military, et cetera. And you recognize very quickly that, that while you can have hand-marked ballots, that inevitably the counting of those ballots is going to require some machinery. 
Now, it turns out there's a lot of mechanization and automation to other parts of the ecosystem of election administration. We're just focusing on merely the counting of ballots at the moment. It's that machinery that performs the what we call the tally and then tabulation of the votes that becomes the, the focus of, of concern. That's what I think is peculiar about, about our system. And in other systems, you can hand count those ballots and go through that process, and you don't have those, those time barriers. And if you have a problem, right? I mean, imagine America trying to call a snap election. Let's uh, take, take a moment uh, to basically um, remind everybody that this is a recording of the podcast Mid-Atlantic. Um, there are literally hundreds of these episodes. If you go to a podcatcher of your choice, if you're in the audience, why don't you um, uh, go and do that whilst also uh, clicking on the little green icon and becoming a member of the Mid-Atlantic Club, which means that whenever we go live with these uh, recordings, which are generally... Uh, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, or Thursdays, you can be alerted, and uh, then you can be also be part of the conversation and the debate. Uh, I'm going to open things up. I've been somewhat scatterbrained with my questions to uh, to Gregory uh, Miller, but Eric Foster, you're a man who uh, thinks very, uh, very deeply about uh, American civics and democracy. Welcome. Do you have a question? Or Gregory Miller. Well, thank you, Roy Field, and thank you, Gregory. I appreciate you being here and doing the things that you're doing. I do have a question and point to ask for your feedback on. The point for asking feedback on is survey after survey shows demonstratively that 90 to 96% of Biden voters have confidence and trust the results of what happened in 2020 and in elections in general in terms of the results. And 60 to 70 percent of third party voters have that same feeling. When we discuss the issue of trusting the election process and not trusting the results, do you think we're forgetting, well, my point is I think we're forgetting that Biden voters and third party candidate voters do trust the process, and we're speaking to a subset of voters who don't, and it makes it seem like it's everybody when it's just that subset. But then another question, Gregory, to tie into that, voting is not a constitutionally guaranteed right in America. And cases from Bush v. Gore to U.S. v. Harris to Minor versus Haberset have cited that in the Supreme Court rulings that the right to vote is not a grant of citizenship, but it is a grant of the determination of how the states will regulate it and that it just can't be discriminated against. Do you, what role do you think that that plays in the current manipulation battle that we're facing with respect to elections, voting, and who can vote and have their vote counted equally in upcoming elections? Thank, thank you for your question. I'm going to take the position based on what we've been doing here for 15 years that you're right. It is an implied right at best within the Constitution federally. That notion uh, amongst a, a portion of the population does indeed um, guide, control, 
they're thinking about um, accessibility to the ballot. Yeah, I like to say there, there are sort of three types of people in this ecosystem of the political world that I, I really struggle to stay away from and just focus on the machinery that facilitates that democracy administration, but recognize I can't avoid it altogether. In my experience, there's three types. There are those who are guided by their ideology. There are those who are driven by their ideology. And there are those who are absolutely blinded by their ideology. And I think that you and I could come up with, with great examples of politicians uh, on both sides, on all sides of the, of the spectrum, who fit those, those three categories. Um, it's not exclusive, but it tends to be a helpful general sort of partitioning of things. And, and I think that we are being overwhelmed by a vocal minority right now as to the trust in the vote. I, I have to say that our research uh, sounds like similar, but maybe a little different in that we're finding that there is a great deal of distrust, not just in the results, but in the process uh, on both sides. In this country, if you're on one end of the political spectrum, you're absolutely convinced there's voter fraud. If you're on the other end of the political spectrum, you absolutely are convinced that there's ballot fraud. Turns out from our position that we all agree on something. There's questions about integrity of the system. And so we ought to do things to ensure verifiability, accuracy, security, and transparency in both the process and the, and the product, if you will. And I, I think that the whole misinformation, disinformation thing, not to just find a scapegoat, the, the enormous power of the propaganda machine uh, made possible by the internet, where today uh, a lie can circle the globe before the truth can find the keyboard, has, has aggravated and amplified this problem to such an extent now that I think there is a lot of confusion amongst a lot of folks. I mean, we, we conduct surveys and we work with, we collaborate with other organizations more qualified than us on, on th this aspect of, of the civic, civics engagement part of it. And, and we find that in certain age groups, there is complete detached disinterest with the whole process, believing that none of it matters, which is horrible. In your polling going forward, if you all can add into your question sets for Biden and voters who pick third party candidates, because to me, those are really the true independent voters mm -hmm. with respect to their concern and trust in process. Is it a trust in the vote total, which I don't think it is, but is it a trust in the administration, which would then lead to a distrust in what the Republicans are trying to do to change the administration process? And one other question, do you think that if we actually did what the spirit of the 13, 14th and 15th Amendments were meant to do, which in writing the congressional members wanted it to make citizenship and voting to be tie barred as a right of citizenship so then the federal government could have more direct role to standardize the administration? Do you think that if we made voting a right of citizenship, that that would help us in addressing some of the disconnect and disparaging outcomes in administration? Yeah, I, I'll just take the latter. The latter is you and I absolutely agree on that. I, you know, I'm, I'm not in a position to to affect legislation and, and whatnot. You know, we're, we're sort of as a as a as a 501c3 nonprofit, we're, we're there as subject matter experts to help Congress understand the ins and outs of technology policy, but I will tell you that I completely agree with you uh, from the standpoint of, of citizenship and, the, and, and, and there being 
an absolute essential ingredient of that uh, as a right to cast, to cast a ballot. To, to the former point, um, I, I'm going to leave it to Royfield to connect us up offline here because I would love to engage with you in working on, on that, that problem of getting at this information. We, we've worked with various institutions before, you know, Tufts, uh, Georgetown, um, Stanford, etc. I, I am always hungry for, for data because the data is what drives the work here to build um, a, a more public and transparent election technology infrastructure. Eric, thank you for a fantastic volley of uh, first questions from people on stage. Uh, quick question, Greg. You've talked about um, civics and the lack of civics within uh, American schools. It's surely one of the, the, the major structural problem, though, uh, with this lack of trust with the whole process is the fact, as, as, as Eric said, is that you have one main party, of which uh, a significant proportion of them doesn't trust the system if their man or woman doesn't win. Surely the, the efforts to go and bolster, reaffirm the solidity, the rigidity uh, of American democracy lies intellectually there with that one party and the fact that a significant proportion of its uh, voters are just distrustful as opposed to um, let's say sitting little boys and girls down uh, and giving them a civics lesson when they're in, when they're about fourteen. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I think I understand the tenor of your question, um, and 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 I struggle here because my job is to remain as nonpartisan as as possible, right? Um, given the the role of my organization and, and whatnot. So, anytime I'm speaking on a public platform, uh, especially one as visible as this, I I have to I have to. Um, Constrain myself to 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 not uh, allow myself to take a partisan view of this. I, I will say that one of the great struggles um, here in in America appears to be around the control and dissemination of knowledge. Right, one political party um, prides itself in in managing or trying to overmanage the uh, administration of books and what what are students allowed to read and see and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, while another group wants to, you know, continually expand that, one group wants to contract that. So there is this ongoing sort of battle um, at the base here of of knowledge and access to it, and and um, and that and that becomes a bit of a problem, right? So you think about wanting to restore civics education in in the high schools, and the question immediately is going to come up is whose version, right? What what, what is going to be included or excluded from that? I mean, look at the terrifying problems we have now with certain groups wanting to um, not even be willing to talk about um, unfortunate portions of our of our history and our past uh, for fear that it's going to bend or distort someone's mind or belief in something. So the problems here are very complex, and I feel completely overwhelmed by trying to address them in, in any competent manner in this forum, uh, other than to say that I continue to believe that there needs to be an objective level of education. I, you know, what's really crazy, and I'll just leave it at this, is you would be shocked to know how many Americans cannot pass the U.S. citizenship test. I want to talk to that because my brother teaches middle school civics in New Jersey, and he feels almost always defeated by the fact that the students that he teach are, teaches are plain old middle class students. They're not poor. 
but they're just plain old students. Their parents don't vote. I mean, we're talking as though everything was a matter of the fight between the parties right now and the fact that one party doesn't trust elections. 50% of America doesn't vote. They don't think that the federal government applies to them or affects them. And when they send their kids to school, they don't expect that their kids are going to be taught anything that has to do with voting. They want their kids taught skills to get a job. We're so far removed in this little ivory tower that is Clubhouse from what is actually going on on the ground. Some parent with two jobs who doesn't vote herself and doesn't have a father in the house is, you know, is sending her kid to school, not even caring what that kid is learning, as long as the hours can fit into the hours that she has to work her job. And this is the biggest problem that we have. The parent is apathetic about voting and thinks the system is either rigged or irrelevant. And it almost doesn't matter which. My brother gave up a lucrative career to go do this because he thought he could, he could really help. He's now been teaching civics for 10 years. He thinks he may be affected two kids out of all the kids that he's had, you know, got really interested and decided to do something about the American government. So, I, you know, I, I, I find it distressing to talk partisan politics when so many people are not even at the point where they even know two parties are out there. Well, thank goodness for those two kids. Royfield, I, I would have to say that one of the things I think is very important is to remember that, that all politics are local and have to be local. And the, and the process of participating in elections, um, sure, there's this, this all, the, all the energy goes into the president and Congress and all of that. But I, I think it is really good for us to think locally and think about the importance of voting just for our local leaders and our local questions and contests. And, and that, because that's, those are the things that directly impact us, and it starts with understanding what, what the impact is to us you know, there and, and then maybe moving from there up. Um, but, I mean, th thank goodness that he is teaching civics and, and attempting to. One of the things that we try to and we, we recognize as a challenge in the work that we do to build better technology is that voting isn't just about members of Congress and the President of the United States, right? It's all the way down to your local elected officials, your school boards, your utility boards, who's on the water board, who's on the sewer. I'm hoping that there can be some, some emphasis placed on the locality of, of politics and, and the necessity to, to, to look at that. I mean, one political party in this country has done a really grand job of doing that, right? And, and we have to ensure that all parties are doing a great job of instilling the necessity to look locally first. Or that it's nonpartisan. You know, I've lived in Arizona for over 50 years, and it's a very Republican state. And yet the local politics of my city are nonpartisan. The Phoenix mayoral race is nonpartisan. The city council race is nonpartisan. And Same true in Portland, Oregon for us. I agree with you. So it's only when you get up higher to the governor and the Senate and, and the presidency that Arizona gets crazy. It's <laughs> never crazy at the local level. Right.
Thank you, uh, Dr. Francine. Greg Sattel. Hi, Gregory. I didn't realize this until the session started, but I interviewed for you for a Forbes article back in 2013, so close to a decade ago. And in that conversation, you outlined four challenges. The first is the first was balkanization of standards. The second was data formatting. The third was fostering interstate cooperation. And the fourth is achieving scale, especially when, you know, it, it, it needs to, uh, you know, a, a startup like Facebook can, can sort of move fast and break things. But with uh, voting technology, you certainly can. So in the almost 10 years that have gone by, how much progress have we made in each of those, in any of those four areas? Mr. Saddle, I'm smiling broadly because I remember that, that interaction with you, and I certainly appreciate you returning and your questions. Because there has been considerable update in a decade's worth of work. I will tell you that with regard to standards, open data standards, um, open software standards, that has progressed, um, albeit with a lot of um, you know, kicking and screaming and dragging people forward. Um, but you know, we've, that ha work has managed to progress with the National Institute of Standards and Technology and the United States Election Assistance Commission. Um, you know, with regard to interstate cooperation, boy, there's been tremendous advance there. We've done so much work with voter registration systems and the ability to improve upon uh, reconciliation of data between states um, to, to, to try to minimize the terrible and wrongful um, uh, removal of people uh, from the records and the rightful removal when they literally did pass away. Um, so we've made great, we've made great progress there. Uh, I think we still have a long way to go with regard to systems um, certification processes uh, and, the, and the model for how that occurs so that we can get a faster uh, life cycle of technology and we can, uh, we can innovate more quickly. But uh, there too, um, we've, we've, we've made some advances that are probably um, worth discussing further. We're going to jump to Andrea. Andrea, you run a very uh, kind of successful club on Clubhouse, which uh, kind of looks at the participation uh, that Americans should have with the American system. So, Andrea, uh, do you have a question? I do. It's uh, Roy Field. It's also kind of cross-partisan, cross-race, building bridges, civic engagement, in a way trying to model what we think some of the change needs to be in democracy and giving calls to action. But uh, the question I guess I have for Gregory is if you could do the most impactful thing to strengthen democracy, let's just start right here in the United States, what would it be? Only going to allow me one. <laughs> Sorry. Right. No, I understand. But it, and so, so if unfortunately, if I'm constrained, if I'm constrained to one and I'm forced to pick, struggling with this, automatic voter registration, I'll pick that as a first one. That would be something that would, I think would be a key to, to, to helping. Um, so I'll, I'll go with that. There are many things, but I'll say, let's start there. Andrew, thank you for a very succinct question. And Dito Gregory for a very succinct answer. Roger, you're up next, sir. Awesome. Thanks. So the, the tone of this conversation is, is that we should trust the vote. And and I, I even heard some stats around like, you know, the, uh, certain demographics trust it more than others. Uh, I'll just make this bold statement. We shouldn't trust the vote. And the reason we shouldn't trust the vote is not simply because of what's happening at the ballot box. It's the way that we structure all of the election processes from the CPD, the Commission on Presidential Debates, which are designed to force 
third parties out of the process, uh, that is not democratic. Uh, when we look at the evidence of intervention in foreign elections, and I don't mean Russians interfering in our elections, we've interfered. The U.S. government has interfered 81 times in foreign elections. So we actively participate in covert and overt uh, election tampering. And so we should absolutely expect that others would want to do it to us. And so my question is, why are we pussyfooting around this issue and acting like, oh, this is an education issue in civics? It's not. It's, it's, it's an example of the fact that we're ignoring that there is rampant corruption within our federal government and all of the parties you know, that step forward, whether we're talking about the political parties, whether we're talking about the 501Cs, whether we're talking about private donors, they're all complicit in this and we're acting as if it's a civics exercise. If we're gonna ignore that there's corruption, I think this conversation's pretty bogus. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna step up and agree with you, straight up. And I'm gonna recommend that, that, that people go look up um, a, uh, a video entitled Unbreaking America, Solving the Corruption Crisis by Jennifer Lawrence. Uh, 12 minute and 36 seconds of very well spent time uh, on YouTube and elsewhere. I'm, I'm stumping for her, but um, it's worth it because you just nailed something that's really important and central. And I, I invite you to, to, to take a look at that. You'll find that, that even in Jennifer's presentation, um, masterfully done, um, there still is an educational component of, of making people aware of what, what these problems are, because you're absolutely right. I think that, as I understand it, this was, this was structured around the notion of civics and civic participation because um, I mean, that is, for us, that, that is the issue. There's, there's a lot more to the issue about trusting the vote than civics education, to be sure, a lot more. But with regard to participation and what influences participation, I think I understood that that's kind of the, the direction that Royfield was, was, was taking. And so when we think of that, we do think about, do people even understand how this process works? You're expanding upon that in a very important way, which is not just, you know, how does the system work, but what are the factors in the system that are broken and really giving rise to this? You know, it, it, we could get into a whole discussion about the Electoral Count Act of 1877 and 1887 and, and, and realize that structurally we have problems um, at the very base of all of this. But you're, you're spot on, man. Yeah, and, and just to, to, to back that up, Roger, I did say to, to Gregory um, that fundamentally, we really, we are going to talk about civics. We can go layer after layer within uh, the structure of, of American democracy. And fundamentally, we would not do it justice if we're going to have questions from the audience, if we're going to try and fit that into an hour. So I gave Gregory a, a, a very limited remit here, which I thought he could speak uh, knowledgeably and, and, and well about considering his own kind of background as the reason why he set up OSET. So, um, so thank you for the question, though, uh, Roger. But um, we did try and keep it narrow to at least get it all within an hour. I'm going to throw this out to um, to Justin Higgins. Justin Higgins, you're up next, sir. Royfield, my good friend. So I just have two quick comments. Not really sure if I have a question. Um, I'm a little confused with the narrative of the show, because if you look at uh, vote turnout in 2020 alone, it's the highest it's been in over 100 years in the United States. And then if you look at our art and our um, culture, uh, politics and uh, civic duty has clearly come to front of mind 
from 2016 forward. So I'd argue that there has been a great reawakening in civics. And then um, the, the next thing that I'd just like to add is, uh, you know, I've, I've worked in Congress. I've been a consultant embedded in CISA. Uh, if we're talking about election integrity, um, I think it's a good thing that Americans know the different voting systems because that initially started from investigative journalism, CBS and other outlets um, bringing up legitimate security concerns. Are these voting machines attached to the internet in a way that foreign countries can interfere in our system? Some of them were, especially in specific counties in Florida. So I think ultimately it's not like Americans don't trust. It's that maybe a little bit differently than the UK culture, which has very strict libel laws and less freedom of speech uh, as defined by our government, the United States and Americans require and demand more transparency. And that's just another security check um, on its own. And then lastly, um, from working in CISA, if we wanted to do something to strengthen the integrity of our elections and we only could do one thing, it would be paper ballots so that we're not just going off of these mechanical vote counts and we actually have the hardcore physical paper ballots to go through and if necessary, do a full recount to ensure that we weren't hacked. So those are my three quick points, Rayfield. Love the show. Um, Thank you for having me. Gregory, just before you answer, because I think the first question was was kind of directed at me and kind of the ethos of the show. The largest turnout in 100 plus years, more Americans voted in the last election, the last general election than, than ever before. Utter facts. Also, January the 6th did happen. And I don't have the ready statistics in front of me. But as a percentage, more Americans are distrustful with the, the mechanics of how American democracy now works in terms of um, its election outcomes. This is a relatively new phenomena. Yes, we're hanging chads in 2000, but those amount of Americans who are skeptical about the whole about the whole system with each election, it seems to rise. And this isn't mirrored in other industrialized democracies. We don't have people within the United Kingdom who are fund, for whatever reason, and I'm utterly here open, and I will say that I do not necessarily know the answer. We don't have people in the United Kingdom who are distrustful of the results, of the tabulations. We just don't. Ditto in every other industrialized democracy. So that's the reason why um, I thought it'd be great to have Gregory on to, to kind of talk about some of these issues around how votes are counted, the mechanisms. But, but, it goes, but, but there is a step behind that, which is why are so many Americans now questioning the efficacy of the results? Uh, Gregory, over to you. Thanks, Rayfield. And I, I'll only add to, to the remarks that the durable paper ballot of record is the predominant mechanism um, by which we, we, we cast and count ballots today. There are ballot marking devices which produce paper. There are issues with those devices. We've written about that extensively on our website. Um, but the, paper, the durable paper ballot of record is and shall be for the foreseeable future um, the, the way that we get this done. It is the currency of democracy, right? The ballot is our currency of, of a democracy. And so the ability to understand voter intent, the ability to recount, I mean, we're big proponents of risk limiting audit technology. You can't do risk limiting audits if you don't have paper ballots to count. Um, so make no mistake, we're huge supporters 
of the paper ballot of record and systems that produce and ensure um, the provenance and integrity uh, and stewardship of, of, of those ballots. Um, so I think, you know, I'm in agreement with you uh, on that, uh, on that point. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Aaron Berger. Uh, thank you, Royfield, and uh, good to see a lot of uh, familiar friends here. Um, Gregory, good, good to meet you uh, as well. Um, my question here, you know, um, we're talking about election security here. Uh, by many accounts, the last election was uh, the most secure that we've had uh, possibly in the history of this country. Over 60 lawsuits that were adjudicated upon that found no fault. Uh, we've had uh, multiple recounts that have found no fault, yet we still have a rather significant Amer- amount of Americans who seem to, to have a, I hazard to say, uh, curiosity that I am hard to, it's difficult to me to see that curiosity satiated unless they win. In your In your research, have you found methods or things that could be agreed upon? that would begin to restore back to levels that we had seen leading up to turn of uh, uh, this century, uh, a restoration of the trust. I'm not saying that we all have to think it's important, of course, to be able to challenge things, certainly, but I think that the response to uh, what I've seen, the unnecessary response to 2020 here, just uh, uh, seems to have this strange curiosity behind it. Thank you. Boy, there's a lot there to, to unpack, and all of it important. Um, and you know, again, I'm going to say that we've 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 written about this extensively with within our blogs at OSETinstitute.org. Let me just say this: um, with regard to the, the securest election ever, so um, being part of uh, various national security teams working on election security, I've uh, been exposed to a considerable amount there, and I have to say that that may have been an unfortunate title um, that people took and ran with. Yes. The election was um, one of the most secure we've had, but that was that was a statement made by a group who gave that assessment that CISA underwrote and took forward. 
Um, and it was a bit myopic in the, in the sense that they were looking at certain indicators that told them uh, the, 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 you know, the, the probability uh, of success in, in security, um, such as the deployment of Albert sensors to, to look for nefarious activities on networks uh, for certain aspects of the election administration ecosystem that had nothing to do with ballot counting and casting. But by and large, it was the most secure. And there were five dozen lawsuits to, 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 that, that showed that the challenges made no sense. They were nonsensical challenges. Here's what happened there real quickly. Unfortunately, there's a scintilla of truth to the, the insecurity, the inherent insecurity of the infrastructure itself. And these individuals took that scintilla of truth, wrapped it with a bunch of disinformation, and created just enough to get people confused as to what really happened. The scintilla of truth is this and the reason we exist. There is an inherent vulnerability in the design and execution of voting machinery today um, that's, that's, that's an irrefutable problem, that these machines are inherently modifiable. Whether or not the radio card is activated, you have an internet connection through Wi-Fi, or whether, whether or not you do any of that, if you have a machine that has a port that allows you to, in, to use removable media, a USB data stick, something like that, the machine is inherently modifiable, and nobody with a straight face can tell you that it's possible to prove that that hardware hasn't been modified. Another subject for another time to go very much deeper into, but that is the inherent problem. And so a lot of the work that we're doing is to, to modify that. As the things that parties have come to agree with in a bipartisan fashion, one thing for sure is recognizing that so long as innovation amounts to a guarantee of spare parts in this country for these election machines, and that's true, then one of the things we need to do is tighten down and securify our supply chain of those spare parts. Um, that's something that we've witnessed bipartisan support for. We've witnessed bipartisan support for um, transparency and for verifiability, accuracy, and security, the four components of what's called the vast mandate, uh, that which indicates a trustworthy election has occurred. And, and how are those being manifest? Well, paper ballots of record, risk-limiting audits. Um, we're going to see in this next election cycle that post-election audits um, are greatly formalized uh, and, and, and some normalcy is restored to that process. Uh, thank you for that uh, question and answer. Ben, uh, you're up next, sir. Uh, thank you, Roy Phil. Um, I know that you had actually answered part of my question already earlier. Um, and I was going to ask about uh, the For the People Act, uh, which is being held ransom by um, uh, Chris and Cinema and uh, Joe Manchin. Assuming that we can get past the filibuster and knowing that it's already been watered down, uh, my sense is that it's probably going to be watered down some more before they vote for it. Which, what elements within the For the People Act are absolutely necessary, do you think, uh, as opposed to the ones that we can take care of later? As you know, that the acts has originated in the House and then over the Senate are really more like omnibus bills for, for matters of elections. So there is, I mean, we've got two folks in our government relations team right now that are plying through the 900 pages to get very clear on each and every element and what should, you know, what may go, what may, may be salvaged. So, you know, that cutting room floor exercise, we're underway in right now, and I don't have any good news for you on it yet. I can tell you that philosophically for us, um, a few things matter to us, at least at the OSA Institute. Um, we think automatic voter registration is very important. We think vote by mail is important. There's no one way to cast a ballot uh, these days, despite you know, the, the, the dominance of the in-person polling place experience. Pandemics aren't going away. Um, you know, climate change isn't going away. There'll be another superstorm, Sandy. 
um, we're going to have exigent circumstances that require people an alternative way to get a ballot cast. So I think that elements of absentee voting, vote by mail, automatic registration um, are really, in our minds, critical. We have a little stupid, silly behind baseball thing. We want to see the critical infrastructure designation codified in 3 USC and taken out as an agency designation within the Department of Homeland Security because agency designations can be given and taken away at the whim of a, of a subsequent administration. But by codifying it, then we're going to create a whole set of, of circumstances where we can guarantee ongoing funding um, for the election security, for election training, etc. Uh, so those are some of our big things that we think are essential. Now, if we were to drift out of our lane, of course, there are all kinds of other questions uh, that we think need to be answered, going back to one of the great ones, uh, which is the notion that voting is a right of citizenship. Out of scope, out of my lane, above my pay grade, all of that. Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you, Ben Mendelson. I'm just quickly looking at the stage, and I think uh, the only person who hasn't actually asked the question, and if I'm incorrect, is you, Emic uh, Tremator, and you were the first person in the room. So, Eric, uh, do you have a question? And if so, ask it and make sure it's a doozy. <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> my question is, why can't we just vote by smartphone? You know, <laughs> I can do my banking. My my distillery can uh, do millions of dollars in transactions uh, very securely through smartphone. What are the specific things that are keeping this technology from being used on a state-by-state -state basis? Well, it's a great question, and I will tell you, thank you for asking. We get that asked a lot of us. We've written a lot about this. It, it requires pawing through our blogs and our research uh, pages at OSINstitute.org. Um, you know, we are 75 people here, of which 42 are research engineers, hardware, software, firmware. Um, I will tell you up front, we are not huge um, uh, supporters of smartphone voting at this stage in, in life with the Internet as we know it and smartphones as we know it. That said, in, in fairness to full disclosure, so real quickly again, I, I want to say that, that we are uh, conducting research and development work now on, on absentee ballot marking systems that work in, in a mobile setting um, that currently produce a paper ballot uh, for submission. But over time, there's a possibility and, and work should continue to explore this. The things that, that, that really block us right now today, and most important, a voting transaction is not a banking transaction. They are two very different transactions for the simple reason that we have this notion of non-repudiation, right? So in a situation of uh, a financial transaction, I can always back it out, right? I can always say, no, I didn't do that. In elections, we have a big, big challenge here in the United States. We have the notion of the very important notions of the secrecy of the ballot and the anonymity of the voter. So unlike a financial transaction, it is, I cannot ever, ever link you to a specific ballot transaction, right? So that's the first problem, is the non-repudiation issue. Secondly, we've got a lot of technical problems that we're working on now, right? How do I know what malware is on your smartphone? How do I know that your device has not been compromised? How do I know that someone in the middle can't compromise the transaction of your ballot from you to the ballot box? How do I know the ballot box itself uh, is controlled, right? This notion of, of the SSL and secure banking transactions, that's a huge misnomer, right? That's the vault vehicle, the, the bank armored car that's traveling. And the example I give is someone leaves a million dollars of cash on a park bench and the armored car comes along, picks up that million dollars of cash and takes it over to the bank and drops it off at the doorstep. 
The good news is that that all million dollars was accountable for inside that armored car. But you have no idea what happens to that million dollars either before or after it is picked up and deposited. So there are technical problems in how we transact data across this particular form of internet. And I've been noodling in internet technology for 40 plus years. And I ask you to trust me when I say this internet was never designed to be used for what it is being used for today. It's a marvel that it remains standing. Uh, it has the longest uptime of anything in history. But be that as it may, there are technology research and development efforts underway to figure that out because inevitably at some point, the ability to cast a ballot um, from a device uh, in your hand is going to be something very desirous for generations coming up who will one day run our state houses. Today and for the foreseeable future, the paper ballot of record is essential and the ability to control the anonymity, ensure the anonymity of the voter and the secrecy of the ballot remain obstacles to smartphone voting. Thank you for that, Gregory. And Eric, um, I misspoke uh, when I said that, um, Eric, you were the only person on stage who hasn't actually spoken. Steve Crone, my good friend, has been quietly um, fuming probably in the last five minutes when, when I said that. Uh, Steve, I've left the best till last. Uh, Steve Crone, do you have a question? Oh, no, I'm not fuming. The, the reason you didn't have me ask a question is because I left and came back. I guess I have one statement and one thing I'd like you to opine on, or maybe opine on both of them if you can. Uh, two, uh, one very closely related to what you do, one less closely related. Uh, first, the idea that although we obviously want to protect voter participation and we want as many people who want to vote to be able to vote, the idea that voter participation rates necessarily produce better results, I think, is contested among political scientists. But that's a largely sort of theoretical question, but I wanted to ask it anyway. The second is, can you talk a little bit about what I see as a tension between the very important reasons why vote counting and vote administration are decentralized, even with standardized procedures, but decentralized, and the risk that that poses in terms of voter suppression, and the idea that these efforts to suppress votes in part can actually be a lot more effective because a lot of these efforts sort of place discretion at a very, very local level where who knows what can happen. Thank you for those, those, those two questions. I'm, I'm going to respectfully punt on the first one purely because it's, it's out of my lane. I'm going to recognize that it is a very important conversation that is contentious, um, this notion of participation and turnout and, and its effect on performance. To the latter, there's similarly some interesting issues here within uh, another P of the five P's of the ecosystem, right? If we think of the, the ecosystem democracy is comprised of people, process, platform, which is the technology, policy, and politics, um, you're, you're, you're speaking to some really interesting issues of, of policy, politics, and, and process. You know, this goes back to the, the fundamental notion of local control um, or, or the, the notion of distributed control down to the lowest level, right? And so that, that's... Um, that's a, that's, an, that's, an, that's a political ideology to a degree, right, in federalism. Um, it does, I think, produce a breeding ground for problems, um, as, as you observe. Our feeling, frankly, from a, from a security standpoint, and I'll take it in a different tack direction because platform is our thing, we believe that central count, as opposed to precinct count, is, is the best and most safest way to, to, to do things. Because when you so distribute your counting process as to taking it down to the precinct level, 
Now you're asking for cybersecurity infrastructure to be replicated at tens of thousands of, of locations, maybe hundreds of thousands of locations more correctly across the country, um, with states whose infrastructure can't even really properly do it for one location, right? So as a matter of election security, we have, we have a whole issue with that. And we, we like the Los Angeles County model, right, which is centralized count. Everything is collected up at the end of the day in each precinct and then couriered by, by escort of California Highway Patrol to the central office where you have these giant high speed, ultra high speed counters who then, who then count the ballots. Um, and of course, then they can conduct, they can add in the absentee ballots, um, the vote by mail ballots, and, and then they have all the ability there for risk limiting audits and recounts, et cetera, because they have their, their, their paws on the ballots, fortunately. So we like central count. In fact, I wrote, I authored a rather extensive paper on our, on our site about the, the concept of the proposal for manner of election security uh, for a federal ballot. Um, that's vote by mail, that's centrally counted. Um, simplest ballot of all, right? Um, because the idea here being that we'll, we'll, we'll grant that the Russians probably don't care about the race for dog catcher in your local jurisdiction. So the security issues can be greatly focused and concentrated at the state level uh, by doing central count. So that's, that's our take on, on that issue. Thank you, Eric. And Steve, I'm sorry if I was, because I felt I was anyway, a little, a little bit kind of unfocused in the general kind of thrust of the conversation. I know that Justin kind of questioned the, the premise of, of, of the room. And I am doing some work with, with, with Gregory. I am utterly fascinated, and I, I say this all the time, with Americans and their belief that... Um, Madisonian democracy equals democracy. And to, and to the point that I think it could have been that you made, Roger, and I thought was, was, was a very good one, you know, that Americans should be skeptical of, of the whole process you know, and, and to look at the detail and to stress this, the detail. And I thought that was totally um, a, a fair argument. We, we've got to hold our electors up to scrutiny. So why don't we hold up the, the minutiae of the process uh, to scrutiny, and and I think that that is healthy. Uh, but but for me, I always want to understand why America is e exceptional. And I think, as somebody who has great admiration for many aspects of American society, um, the, the the fact that there could be a riot, an attempted coup an insurrection, a disturbance, or a patriotic invasion of the Capitol building, which whatever you want to call it, that that could happen is profoundly shocking. And I know for most Americans it's profoundly shocking. But for the rest of the world, it was unfathomable uh, what, what happened. And not wanting to be disparaging to emerging democracies, but that's the type of thing we associate with emerging democracies. You know, so 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 with that in mind and thinking about the year that, that we've had, I thought that framing the room thus with a deep skepticism that uh, many Americans have for the system uh, was, was a right and proper thing to do. But but I, but I take your point, though, Roger, and I did say this before, Aaron, uh, I will completely defer to you in a minute, sir, um, that there are many aspects of uh, the American political system which are, can be drawn legitimately into question. Um, I, I would say even down to why do you need to register whether you're a Republican or Democrat? That doesn't happen anywhere else. Why do you need to say what your allegiance is? Uh, it, it, go, it goes on and on and on. And, um, but anyway, this is not for me 
uh, as a Brit who only half understands the American system to a pine on a stage full of Americans. So, uh, Aaron, you're muted. No, thank you, Lofeld. Building off of that there a little bit, and then, number one, I thought it was fine. I mean, maybe I just thought it was fine because I'm also a little bit all over the show, as my girlfriend would say sometimes. Um, but, uh, um, you know, the interesting thing is that, you know, the healthy skepticism is important, but we should also recognize that, broadly speaking, right, the elect- the people who question elections don't really question the elections that they win, right? Exactly. And I think that's an important yeah. – oh, uh, sorry, uh, what were you saying and I'll, I'll finish. No, no, no. I was just going to say – and that's the point that, that I made in one of my questions, that they only question it when their man or woman doesn't win. Right. It's like because, you know, when we were looking at uh, the 2020 election, you know, uh, only the – uh, uh, presidential portion of the ballots were considered to be, you know, needed to be, uh, reviewed, right? Completely forgetting that all of the other people running for Congress, for what you, were on the same exact ballot, you know? Um, and, and that's why when I see this stuff, it's like, you know, I have a hard time not drifting toward some kind of, you know, uh, authoritarian bend as, as what uh, Eric was, uh, um, Eric Foster was alluding to there, right? It's because it's like, oh, well, I'm only going to question the stuff that I lose, right? Had it, had it been like, all right, well, we should go and question every single down ballot thing because everybody was on the same ballot. I also think that that's kind of, you know, ridiculous maybe in hindsight there, but that would have been a little bit easier or rather consistent pill to swallow than just saying, oh, well, Trump didn't win. Well, we got to we got a question just the presidential counts them. It's this selective skepticism that really makes me curious about why the skepticism exists in the first place. Absolutely. And, and we didn't mentioned because we were taking very sure, 30,000 feet above uh, the ground kind of like view the fact that in, in a lot of these races where people questioned the ballot there was a racial component as well you know this, these are urban voters these were black districts so let, let, let's question that let's question the the integrity of those uh, people who've gone out and done their civic duty and actually manning those voting voting stations. I want to have one last question uh, before we end the recording of the podcast. And if people still want to continue the conversation, I'll leave the room open for another 15 minutes or so. Uh, but uh, the title of the podcast and of the room is Do Dead Men Vote? Um, D, uh, Gregory, how do we know that dead men only rarely vote? Uh, I know you gave us a specific, specific example uh, before. As a percentage of the overall vote, what what is this? Um, you know, what is the level of fraudulent voting? So first, um, how do we know that dead men occasionally do vote? And then, what you know, what is the percentage of the overall vote which uh, we know to be fraudulent? I'll take I'll take the latter question. It's it's really infinitesimally small uh, as a percentage. I mean, the studies have been done over and over again about that. I think in in, in some of these last recounts. Um, you know, and in something like four million ballots, we found four. Um, but the, but there, there are accurate numbers out there. I'm not going to be able to quote them off the top of my head. Um, but 
considerable research has been done on this, um, and the number is infinitesimally small, like 0.0001% or, or less. But we know when there are problems, if we have the correct you know, checks and balances in, in the system, right? Um, absentee ballots have to have an attestation envelope in which they have a secrecy envelope inside, and then the, the, the signature is examined, and if it's approved, um, then that ballot is the, that envelope is open. The other ballot, the other envelope is uh, sent over the transom, uh, and and is now counted in a way that it's de-identified. Um, but occasionally, dead men do vote. It turns out, and four four instances reported this week. And, and here's how that happens: um, the laws vary from state to state. But you had an individual who cast a ballot, right? And they've respectfully, correctly requested an absentee ballot or a vote by mail ballot, whichever the case may be. Um, and in these cases, they were health reasons. They, they couldn't attend the polling place. So they received their ballot. And they duly marked it, cast it, signed their envelope, everything. But because they were, they were hospitalized or they were homeridden, um, their relative um, had to take that ballot and turn it in, which, which they did. But something awful occurred on the way getting to the counting point. The person actually passed away. So the question becomes, does their ballot count? And if you counted it, did a dead person just vote? Query, as they say in major Eastern institutions. I, you know, th this varies from state to state, right? In some cases, no, if you're not alive at the day the ballot is counted, then your ballot doesn't count. Um, if you, you know, if you, in some other cases, um, so long as you, you counted it, uh, you cast it when you were alive, the fact that you passed subsequently before it was counted is irrelevant. Um, those rules vary, but that is really the case of dead men voting. Gregory Miller, thank you for coming on to uh, Mid-Atlantic and fielding so many uh, well-considered uh, questions. But uh, don't forget, folks, uh, left of centre politics, we always say here, is right-thinking politics. But we don't demonise our right-leaning brothers and sisters. We try and win them over the strength of our argument because that's what strengthens democracy, conversation and agreeing to disagree. Thank you, Gregory Miller. Thank you, Eric Foster, Ben Mendelson, Aaron Fisher, uh, Roger, uh, Aaron Berger, Dr. Dan, Steve Crone, Greg Sattel, Justin Higgins. And, and we also had Andrea with us and Dr. Francine um, Hardway, who I can, I can absolutely recommend. If you ever find yourself in London and you fancy having a cup of tea, having one in Barnes with Dr. Francine and meeting her family is an ideal way of whiling away an afternoon. I had the great pleasure of meeting the wonderful doctor who's over from Arizona in London today, and I had a thoroughly agreeable time. We'll see you all again uh, sometime uh, tomorrow, by the time you're listening to this, for another Rip Roaring Barnstorming episode of Mid-Atlantic. If you're in the audience right now, please give everybody on stage a follow and specifically uh, Gregory Miller, because we do want him to be able to uh, to come back onto the show, but also be a part of Clubhouse. So give everybody a follow. Also give the Mid-Atlantic Room a follow as well. And if you listen to the podcast, download the Clubhouse app, and then you can be part of a live recording of the show. I've run out of puff. And um, there you go. That's me, Royfield Brown. That's been Mid-Atlantic. Take care. Bye-bye.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.